Hi guys, and thank you for joining and tuning in. My name is Jackson, and I am the founder of The Nurse Break, a platform for Aussie nurses and other health professionals and students to share insights into the careers and experiences in written blog and article formats. You can check these out on www.thenursebreak.org. And as of recent, as you are well aware, I've decided to start some interactive live Q&A interviews so we can hear from our nursing and other healthcare workers uh, across Australia in real time. Uh, the Nurse Break is on multiple platforms and you can connect with TMB on Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, you can also listen to these interviews as podcasts in your spare time on Podbean, Anchor and Spotify. Uh, I just wanted to do a few shout outs to some organizations and people that I've collaborated with. A shout out to my friend Daniel, the founder of an app called TopTile. You can download on Android and Apple. You can read all the blogs from The Nurse Break uh, on his app. Um, alongside the big players like BBC, Mamma Mia, Vogue, The Scientist, if that's if they float your boat. Um, a big shout out to Athel from F-Wards. He is an ED nurse and founder of F-Wards, an app to help organising your shifts and wellbeing. Uh, you can check Facebook by searching F-W-A-R-D-S, F-Wards. And a shout out to Osmed. Uh, you can read the Nurse Break blogs from all the health professionals on Osmed now and even document them as CPD, which is pretty cool. Uh, we are starting with a COVID-19 series and are looking for any health professionals or any healthcare workers, clinical or non-clinical, uh, to write in 300 words or less a little piece about their experiences working on the front line. Uh, please check out the Nurse Break website for more details. And guys, if you are watching this live on Facebook, uh, make sure to post your comments and questions as you listen along, and I'll ask my guest. Uh, and also, please uh, click the share button so that your friends can also follow along and ask their questions. Um, I'd love to know where you guys are listening from, so also post where you're from. Uh, let's get this show on the road. Hey guys, I've got Simon O'Grady. He is an emergency nurse practitioner uh, currently in Melbourne. Thank you for coming along. No worries, Jackson. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So a little introduction about Simon. He was first exposed to healthcare in Ireland as a volunteer uh, first aider with the Order of uh, Malta Ambulance Service. And uh, from there, that inspired him to be do nursing. And he worked for a couple of years as a nurse there. And then in 2011, he came to the wonderful land down under and is currently in Melbourne working at uh, a major pediatric emergency department. But he's also worked at a lot of adult uh, specialized major public tertiary hospitals as well. Um, and in his spare time, he volunteers pre-hospital as a, a nurse practitioner uh, at major events with St. John Ambulance Victoria, and he also works in the nurse practitioner-led uh, GP-like clinic. Um, so, Simon, thank you for coming along. And I did a little quiz for people in my last uh, interview and asked them for some feedback on the first one with Ben. And the feedback I got three things was, one, don't touch your face, because I kept touching my face. <laughs> The second one was get a microphone so people can hear better. So I've done that. So hopefully this works. And the third one was start with an icebreaker. So I All asked right. a few people what icebreaker to start with. And I'd like to ask you, Simon, what is your favorite drug? <laughs> nice question. <laughs> I think my favorite drug probably has to be paracetamol. Um, I think it uh, works for everything. Um, it also um, is easy to take. And I also have to say that um, it's very underestimated, um, and also I really like the fact that we're not quite sure how it works. 100%. I remember I did before nursing. I did a pharmacology uh, degree, and we 
it was quite interesting learning that we use Panadol paracetamol so commonly, but there's no like like agreed on mechanism of action, which is really interesting. Um, like a lot of the drugs we use, like who knows how they work, but they work. Um, yeah. Before we get into some of the more nitty gritty questions, I'd just like to um, ask you, how have you been coping with COVID-19? It's so topical. Uh, how has it impacted and changed the provision of care in paediatrics uh, in your view? Um, so I suppose it's it's um, changed our, our sort of daily life um, massively and had a great impact um, on everything we do. Um, so that's been um, a bit tough. So simple things like going to the gym or going to meet friends um, and stuff like that. So that's been really hard. It's all been changed to an online platform now. Um, in terms of provision of care for pediatrics, mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things that I've noticed is um, children are obviously quite scared when they come into an emergency department um and one of the things mm -hmm. that we normally do to to sort of um allay their fears a little bit is give them a smile um but now with the the, uh, the um mm -hmm. the um the the masks that we have to wear um every day that's really hard to actually build that initial rapport with the, with the child because you're actually wearing a mask and and that can be quite scary mm. for children as well. So that's one of the biggest things that I've noticed um, that's impacted my care, um, especially with younger people. Are you guys doing anything with the masks? Are you like running smiley faces on them or putting photos of you on your chest or anything like that so you can like build that relationship? Um, we, we tried drawing some smiley faces on the masks and they actually turned out to look even more scary than what the just the plain mask did. So we, we quickly abandoned okay. ship on that. Okay, okay. Um, so how did you get into nursing? Um, so as you as you mentioned earlier on, um, I started off obviously my career in Ireland, if you if you weren't able to pick the accent. Um, and um, at the age of sort of nine or 10, I joined the Order of Malta, which is essentially a first aid organization, um, similar to what St. John's Ambulance is here. Um, and that's how sort of I, I got my taste for um, for healthcare and, and progressed then through um, through um, the the ranks in the Order of Malta up until yep. I finished my schooling and then progressed on <clears throat> to do um, nursing at university then. Okay, very cool. And when you were in uh, Ireland as a nurse, where did you work mostly before you came to Australia? Um, yeah, so in Ireland, I completed all of my training in St. James's Hospital, which is one of the largest teaching hospitals in Ireland, and it's based in, in Dublin City Centre. Um, so I did all of my training at that particular hospital and then spent about 18 months um, working once I qualified as a nurse there um, before I left. Okay, and that was in respiratory? Yeah, so initially when I qualified, um, I started off in respiratory nursing um, and then um, after about three or four months, I moved to emergency. I think um, ward nursing wasn't um, wasn't really for me. I think I preferred yeah. the variety of, um, of presentations, so differences between medical and trauma, um, whereas um, the respiratory ward gave me a, a really good basis for um, high acuity nursing. A lot of patients there yeah. um, were quite sick. Um, and um, yeah, that kind of gave me my thirst for emergency nursing or, or acute care nursing. And I thought the, the logical step to get a little bit more variety in nursing was to um, to move to the emergency department. Um, and that also fitted in well with my pre-hospital experience. Um, so yeah, that was the logical move. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, so a Bachelor of Nursing in Australia is about three years. Uh, you can become a, if you have a degree already, you can actually become a nurse like myself in two years if you do the master's version. Uh, in Ireland, 
is it a three-year course or do you have to become a midwife as well how what's the degree like how does it work yeah so um obviously i've i've never been a student nurse in australia <laughs> but i've dealt with lots of student nurses through um through the emergency departments that i've worked in um so in ireland it's a four-year course and it's a, a honors degree um course depending on where you where you study um and you come out essentially as what's called a registered general nurse and that's basically gives you um, a really good ground level in nursing in all different specialities. So you get a taste of of everything, essentially. I know in, in Australia, you don't quite you're not quite afforded that um, that luxury where you don't get to mm. to have a placement in every single speciality, whereas in Ireland, I think we get a really broad range of exposure to um, to nursing um, different types of patients and different specialities. And, and it's actually a requirement um, as a nurse in uh, to be registered as a nurse in Ireland is to actually tick off all of those placements like obstetrics, pediatrics, psychiatry, medical, surgical um, and um, um, th those kinds of things. So um, that's sort of one of the biggest things is the the time difference. I suppose the the grad year for nursing um, in Australia we don't quite have the same type of of structure as that. We have what's called a, a rostered year, and that's built into our um, into our undergrad, and it's essentially nine months um, where you're paid to be on the wards and and essentially two student nurses in their roster year are equivalent to one qualified nurse is how it sort of works. Um, and um, you, you're essentially a, a student that has um, almost got their autonomous nursing practice, um, but not quite yet. So you still report to a, to a registered general nurse on the wards and stuff like that when you're looking after patients. Um, so they're kind of the two biggest differences with, with students, I think, in, in, um, in Australia and Ireland. Yeah, it's a really big difference. And I, I get a lot of messages um, through to the Facebook page, The Nurse Break, and a lot of people want to get a graduate in pediatrics, but they don't have the experience and they're really worried about, I never did a paid placement. Can I get a job? Um, we can get back to that a bit later. But I guess my next question is, what on earth is an NP and uh, what areas can nurse <laughs> practitioners work in? <laughs> I think that is a really good question. It's a question that a lot of people have. They see me a bed and I introduce myself as the nurse practitioner and they're like, sorry, the what now? Um, or I've got it on my, you know, if, if I'm doing pre-hospital stuff with St. John, I'll have my um, nurse practitioner panels and, and even St. John members will ask me, oh, what, what's the difference between a nurse and a nurse practitioner? Um, so a nurse practitioner is, a, is a, essentially a nurse um, who has... Um, completed um, a master's um, at university in um, advanced nursing practice. Um, and you have to tick off specific subjects within that nursing practice master's. Um, and they include a pharmacology um, module and um, a um, health assessment module um, and a research module. And they have to be core parts of your um, of your masters in nurse in um, advanced nursing practice the other thing that you need to do to become a nurse practitioner is you need to um you need to have 5000 hours of supervised practice in the area of, of your speciality um, mm -hmm. and that supervised practice is essentially what allows you to become autonomous in your practice as a nurse practitioner so when i say autonomous um, what a nurse practitioner can do is they um, see their own patients, they manage those patients independently, um, as well as collaboratively with their medical and allied health colleagues. Um, and they can prescribe medicines um, within a certain formulary if they work in Victoria. Um, they can um, 
they can also order tests and they can interpret the tests that they order. Um, the other things that they can do is they can independently discharge patients. So from an emergency department point of view, um, I can autonomously see a patient um, and they can essentially get the same care as they would um, they would with seeing um, a doctor, um, but have just seen me and not have any um, have any contact with the doctor. Um, and it's a way that that nurses can improve their uh, sorry expand their scope of practice, um, and that that, that um, bridge the gaps in our in our healthcare in Australia. So a nurse practitioner is many different things. Um, mm -hmm. And in in response to the the second part of the question, um, nurse practitioners can work in multiple different areas. Do I suppose when you think about the different areas, sky's the limit as to um, what areas nurse practitioners can work in. Um, mm -hmm. I think in Australia, the, the, the biggest um, cohort of nurse practitioners would be in the emergency department um, and so followed up closely by um, uh, older people, um, older people care, older persons care. <laughs> aged care, for example, are there, are there nurse practitioners in aged care? Yeah, that's correct. Yep. So um, okay. making a really big impact in in um, aged care at the moment, nurse practitioners, mm. um, and that's a, a really a really big part of the nurse practitioner cohort in um, in Australia at the moment. Yeah, I read an article recently that a doctor might only go to an aged care facility once a week uh, to see a person, or or even less. So I guess embedding a nurse practitioner in there can really promote uh, good healthcare for these really chronically acute, um, not uh, not necessarily acute, but chronically. Um, um, ill people sometimes who are in aged care. Yeah, and it's it's about continuity of care as well. That the the nurse practitioner is there. They do they do rounds in the aged care facility every day. They get to know the patients. They get to know the families. And and sometimes that that nurse practitioner may have done all of their training in that facility. So they've been in that facility for a very long time and get to know all of the patients um, really really well. Okay, really good advice. Now you sort of touched on it a little bit, but. Um, how does one actually become an expeditioner? So do you go through a, a candidacy, I believe? Yeah, so initially um, how it works is that you become a, a nurse practitioner candidate and that's through an application process in, in your own sort of area. Um, and that candidacy takes, um, it's, it's a 5,000 hour candidacy um, and you either come into the candidacy with your master's or you do your master's as well as your candidacy at the same time. Um, and the mm -hmm. candidacy, um, basically provides you some structured um, education and structured, um, I suppose, reporting mechanisms um, for your practice on the way to becoming um, an autonomous practitioner. So mm -hmm. for example, in the emergency department, when you're an, a nurse practitioner candidate, um, you, um, you start off as a, as a, a very um, junior nurse practitioner candidate and your scope of practice is quite limited. So you may only see um, lacerations or simple broken bones and things like that. Um, and then you report back to either the consultant that's running the shift or the nurse practitioner that you may be working with, depending on who's around. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a mechanism for safety, patient safety, and also a mechanism for you to learn um, the, I suppose, the tricks of the trade. Um, and then as you become more confident, you widen your scope of practice and the patients that you see, um, all within a supported um, environment. Um, and that sort of rounds out your candidacy and then after your 5,000 hours um, or once you're confident in, in your um, 
your practice and you want to move on to endorsement, you apply to APRA um, for your endorsement. Um, and provided that you um, supply them with the relevant documentation, then they'll stamp your forms and, and, and you become an endorsed nurse practitioner. And on APRA, um, when you look at it, does it say nurse practitioner or what does it say? So it says, when I look at my registration, um, it says $175, first of all. Um, and second of all, it's, <laughs> second of all, it says um, registered nurse. And then if you scroll down and it, it says endorsement as a nurse practitioner. Um, okay. And it gives you, um, in Victoria, it's a little bit different than other states. Um, because in Victoria, we have... Um, different uh, groups of nurse practitioners um, mm. and, and their practice within a certain um, certain area. And there's seven of those different um, groups. Um, and then um, the, you practice within the group that you're, um, that you're assigned or that you've become endorsed in. Okay, cool. Um, I guess my next question is, um, so what's the transition uh, from, you know, a student to a grad to that career progression? How does that clinical pathway work? So do most nurse practitioners become clinical nurse specialists or consultants first? And I guess what is the difference between a nurse practitioner and an advanced practice nurse? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, I think the the career pathway for a nurse practitioner is a little... Um, fluid i suppose you can you can go many different pathways through to becoming a nurse practitioner but i think um one of the main things is that you're you're essentially a, an expert in the area that you practice um as a nurse and then you you look for that extra extra bit of autonomy um and that's the, where the nurse practitioner comes in so often the nurses that have, have progressed to senior positions such as cns's or cnc's in their area um then the next step for them clinically is is nurse practitioner. The other area that some people have also come through um, is the education stream. So they're providing high level education to all of the um, registered nurses on the floor or the CCRNs, <coughs> the critical care registered nurses on the floor. Um, mm -hmm. And they want to sidestep from education a little bit and move into clinical practice or advanced clinical practice. And that's where they sidestep into nurse practitioner. Um, and they're the kind of routes that you take. Um, I suppose the difference between a nurse practitioner and an advanced practice nurse um, is that nurse practitioner has a dedicated and specific um, uh, framework that you need to uh, accomplish to to have the title of nurse practitioner. So you must mm. have your nurse practitioner, uh, your master's, and you must have your 5,000 hours um, supervised uh, clinical supervised practice. Um, and once you have those and you apply to APRA, it's an endorsement on your actual registration to apply for um, endorsement as a nurse practitioner. Whereas with an advanced practice nurse, you don't have the you don't have the um, endorsement with APRA to be an advanced practice nurse. Um, and that's um, one of the main differences that you, you see. Um, and advanced practice nurses come at many different levels. So many times there are nurses who are operating um, at a really, really high scope of practice um, and they're, they're almost bordering on nurse practitioners. Um, and then you have advanced practice nurses who have maybe done a course in one specific thing to advance their practice in a, in a different area. Um, and that by virtue of them doing that course, that that skill that they've gained from that course um, entitles them to be called a, an advanced practice nurse. So everyone's increasing their scope of practice, but I suppose it's the autonomy and and the the um, the status with the registration with the registration <clears throat> body that that sort of holds the the title of nurse practitioner in, in such a high regard. 
Okay. And I guess when we talk about scope of practice, uh, I've had a few people message me before this, that they get a bit confused how that works. So a critical care registered nurse, for example, generally speaking, would be able to manage inotropes and look after a ventilator patient, you know, give or take, they have a relatively similar scope. Um, that might not be correct, but that's my understanding. A nurse practitioner, however, is very specific. So a nurse practitioner could be in aged care or could be in um, perioperative care or could be in um, mental health, uh, for example. So a scope of practice is not transferable to another area, for example. So you, you couldn't go to another nursing clinical area if you got bored of ED, for example, and be like, am I still a nurse practitioner? Are you going to hire me as a nurse practitioner? Is that correct? Or Yeah. So in Victoria, there are seven different categories of nurse practitioner. Um, you can apply for as many as you want, provided you have the clinical experience to back that up. So I actually have four notations on mine. So I have pediatrics, critical care, acute and supportive care um, and primary care. And they're by virtue of the patients that I've seen and my clinical exposure to those patients throughout my candidacy. And APRA has said that I've supplied enough um, uh, reference documents and, and clinical exposure documents to say that I have um, the skills to be endorsed in those four areas. The other ones that I don't have endorsement in are um, psychiatry, mental health, perioperative, um, and care of the older person or aged care. Um, and they're very specific ones, in, in my opinion, whereas the other ones are, are mm. sort of a little bit more broad, barring pediatrics, because that's pretty specific as well. Um, mm. But yeah, so if I wanted to become an aged care nurse practitioner, for instance, I would have to go back and and perhaps complete a candidacy or, or, or complete a, a, a a period of education and, and supervised practice within the area of aged care to be endorsed as an aged care nurse practitioner. And as um, I'm, I'm speaking for Victorian nurse practitioners at the moment, um, mm. I think nurse practitioners outside Victoria don't have the specific notations on their on their registration, um, and they're just nurse practitioners. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. Uh, and you said acute supportive care. What is acute supportive care? Yeah, so acute and supportive care is a kind of crosses over with um, critical care. So it's those presentations that may not be critically unwell, but are still unwell and require acute um, acute intervention. And that may be things like people who present to private practice who have an exacerbation of their asthma that does not need to be managed in the hospital or mm. patients that present with acute abdominal pain that does not need to be managed in the hospital. It can be managed in an outpatient setting. Um, and mm. that's sort of where this acute and supportive care comes in. Okay. Uh, following on from that, I guess, is... What is a typical day like for you uh, as an NP in ED? Yeah, I think I think by virtue of being or of anybody working in a nurse practitioner as is a um, an emergency department um, clinician, no day is exactly the same. Um, but typically, uh, an initial day starts off with um, uh, a a huddle or a, a gathering of all the staff that are about to start the shift. Um, and that's usually medical, nursing, clerical, and uh, a clerical allied health and support staff. And we all get together um, most of the time at the start of the shift to introduce ourselves and, and find out who we're going to be working with in the shift. Um, after we have any sort of announcements for the day, um, we sort of break off into our um, 
into our teams for the day. So if you're working in the main cubicle area, you'll break off with the cubicle team and have a chat with them and, and discuss how you're going to run the shift. If there's anything you particularly need to get out of the shift or anything you particularly want to see that day. Um, and it's particularly pertinent when you work in the fast track area. If you, you know, you feel like you want to improve your skills on fracture manipulation or something like that, then that can be something that if a patient comes in that requires a fracture manipulation, that that person can can be involved in the care of that patient. So that's how it starts. Um, and then as we sort of disseminate into our, our various areas, um, you go and I will pick up the next patient to be seen on the list um, and go in and see that patient. Um, if I feel like I can manage that patient completely autonomously, then I will do that from um, admission to discharge. Um, at the same time, if I feel like I need to collaborate with any other colleagues, whether that is, you know, a medical doctor, it's a social worker, it's a physiotherapist, it's a admitting inpatient team, or it's their own GP, then I'll collaborate with collaborate with those with those um, members of the team to um, advance that patient's care and move them along through their emergency department journey. So, um, essentially, it's and a typical day in the ED for a nurse practitioner is is about seeing patients. Um, improving their their um their the reason that they've come into the emergency department and giving them an uh, answers and and have, making a plan of care for those patients the other thing that's perhaps something that um people may forget is that I'm also an experienced emergency nurse. So areas of nursing, you know, if there's a, a big resuscitation that comes into the emergency department, the nurse practitioner is also an experienced registered nurse or a critical care registered nurse. So they often get pulled um, to do maybe uh, airway roles in a resuscitation or circulation roles in a resuscitation mm. um, or, or, you know, assessment role in a, in a resuscitation. So we often get pulled to do nursing tasks as well, even though we are a autonomous practicing clinicians, um, mm. we do get pulled to do um, some of the stuff that we, you know, what, the way we, um, the, where we started off our training essentially is, is as an emergency department registered nurse or a critical care registered nurse. So it's, it's varies different times, different days. Um, but that's the, the, the beauty of being a nurse practitioner is that you, you cross between the medical and the nursing model and, and you get exposure to lots of different things. It sounds like a really varied profession um, yeah. or, or pathway for nurses. And I, I, sort of, I started the nurse break because we often talk in isolation as health professionals and the media doesn't do a good job of uh, showing how collaborative healthcare really is. And you'll see, you know, different teams in particular doing certain things that in reality is not what happens. So it's really good to hear you talk about how, you know, you all huddle together. And where I work as well, we have that collaborative huddle uh, halfway through a shift and the doctors, the nurses, the social, all the allied health will come together. And because at the end of the day, we're one big team. Um, before we go on, guys, if you're watching live, welcome. Hey, and uh, please comment and put any questions you have. Uh, there's been a few of you put some things in. We've got um, Marion Roche says hello from Plymouth, Devon, England. I don't know if you know Marion, but there no, you go. Plymouth, not Plymouth. <laughs> Well, there's my ignorance right there. <laughs> I've got uh, Travis listening in from Perth. Hey, Travis. And I've got a question that sort of follows on a little bit um, about uh, what we're just talking about. And that's from Athel. Uh, how did your role in the emergency department change becoming an nurse practitioner? Did you, did you have a feeling of more or less significance in your nursing team? That's <laughs> three questions. And moving to a nurse practitioner change... Sorry, and moving to a nurse practitioner change your level of contribution as a nurse. 
Yeah, so I suppose they're really good questions and really good um, sort of ways to impact um, nursing moving from a registered nurse to a nurse practitioner. So yes, it did um, have a big impact on my uh, role within the emergency department. Um, and I was going from caring for a specific set of patients in the um, in the cubicle areas or the resource areas to to moving around to having individualized care and seeing a patient where I am the treating clinician um, and I am I'm, you know the one responsible for the care of this patient and thinking about the planning and discharge for that patient more autonomously um, than mm. being a registered nurse so I suppose that's one of the biggest things that that changes when you when you transition from becoming a registered nurse to a nurse practitioner is that the mind for the mindset um, changes and the 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 things that become more pertinent change so when the patient comes in it's about thinking is there something that I'm going to miss here that's going to adversely impact that patient and thinking through all of the diagnosis um, mm. To, to rule out anything that's going to impact that patient's care negatively. Um, what was the second mm. part of the question? That was a long question. Um, uh, did you have a feeling of more or less significance? Um, I think that's a, a really good um, quest part of the, the the question to ask as well. And it's, it's, um, it's I suppose, having a different impact or, or, or an impact that's that changes your role within the emergency department. So you're moving from a, a, an area where you're a registered nurse to a nurse practitioner. So that's obviously one of the most senior nurses in the department. So you're obviously involved in a little bit more of the leadership um, pathways and those types of scenarios within the, the nursing leadership team. So in the mm. hospital that I work, there's a, a nursing leadership team consists of the NUM, who's essentially responsible for running the entire department nursing wise, the mm. nurse educators, the um, uh, associate nursing managers and the nurse practitioners and we as a senior group of nurses all collaborate together um, and we work together to advance nursing um, within yep. our department um, so it, yet whilst it whilst I still look after patients clinically um, I'm doing it in a different way but I also impact the the um, the direction of the department through the nursing leadership team okay I hope that answers your question um, Athol now what are some of the common presentations that you see? Um, so now, common presentations vary. Yep. I, I was just going to say, like, it's a very big question, so just you don't have to <laughs> say everything that you see. <laughs> yeah, so um, I suppose this sort of is maybe prefaced by um, the scope of practice of the nurse practitioner. Um, so lots of nurse practitioners um, may have a baseline standard that they meet, but some nurse practitioners have obviously advanced in certain specific areas um, and um, have added different areas to their scope of practice. So it depends on your, your scope of practice um, as to what patient you'll see. So some nurse practitioners that have just started out um, may just stick to seeing um, fractures or wound care or some of the single system, um, single system uh, injuries or illnesses and then as you move on you, you you move into the more complex types of of patient presentation so the fevers the abdominal pains you know the the people who are, are a little bit more complex to work out exactly what's going on as opposed to you know ordering a test that will tell you the answer to the question that you ask you have to think a little bit more broad so there's lots of different areas that you can you can um areas you can see patients um, and I know in our in our emergency department um, 
the types of presentations that you see are mainly based around the area that you work in. Um, mm. So if I work in the fast track area, you're usually seeing more of the um, the fractures, the dislocations, the wound management, um, the rashes and those types of things. Whereas if you work in the general cubicle area or the resuscitation area, you're seeing more of the respiratory presentations, the, the gastrointestinal presentations, the fever presentations. So um, it's we're, we're really lucky to have such a wide variety um, to, to of patients to see in, in the area that I work in. Um, I know some nurse mm. practitioners um, who only work in the fast track area, um, but um, I think there's a lot of work around um, trying to get nurse practitioners out into the general population in the emergency department, especially um, because we are that those advanced um, uh, those those nurses that have that advanced autonomy and and thinking um, and and we also have the qualifications to back it up. Um, so yeah, I, I think we see lots of different presentations and mm. um, and yeah, it's hard to pick out what's the most common. Yeah, no, I can understand. Um... And I guess sort of sort of following on from that is there's an app called the Emergency Nurse Practitioner app, and it provides assessment tips and general information for health workers uh, and those with little experience uh, with pediatric patients. Now, I believe you had some involvement in this or uh, as part of a bigger team. Yeah, that's right. Um, so the nurse practitioner team at the Royal Children's Hospital um, we started off with a small pocket guide, which was essentially tips and tricks from all the nurse practitioners and, and consultants that have sort of given us education over the years from the, the time that we started in nurse practitioner um, mm. model that, that um, were essentially invaluable to, to us and everyone that joined the nurse practitioner team, you essentially weren't a nurse practitioner candidate till you had your little pocket guide. Um, <laughs> and we found that, um, you know, moving with the times, we need to upgrade this and incorporate it into some sort of electronic resource. And then we thought, well, if we're incorporating this into an electronic resource, why do we need to just keep it to ourselves? And so we, mm. we developed the nurse practitioner app. Um, and one of our nurse practitioners, uh, Melanie Turner, she spearheaded the, the project um, with involvement from all of the nurse practitioners and a lot of the consultants um, within the emergency department and also in the, the wider um, the wider organization and that they um, collaborated with us um, on knowledge and, and pieces of information to put into the emergency nurse practitioner app. Um, and it's a really good free resource um, for anybody that, that sort of is looking after um, kids and that wants to maybe learn a little bit more about how to manage kids or or you think oh god mm. you know I, I've been doing this for a long time and it's really not working is there a different way that I can do this or what's the best practice way to actually hold a child for an examination of their ears or their throat or how do I examine a child's dentition what's the best way to do that and there's lots of different tips and tricks as you go along yeah. um, and, and look through the emergency nurse practitioner app and they're, they're a really good resource. Yeah, I've downloaded the app. It, it is really, um, really useful, actually. And I guess it'd be quite useful in rural populations as well, I guess, for the nurses there with very limited medical uh, resources around. Is that Was that sort of a target audience or...? Yeah, absolutely. So when we started the the nurse practitioner um, pocket guide or the paper form, um, it was a very highly sought after document. Um, and, you know, when we started to see patients and pull out the, the little pink pocket guide, everyone kind of was looking at us going, oh, what's that? 
how do I get one of those? And um, it was it was really sought after, especially the the um, emergency registrar group that we're rotating from the adult population who wouldn't have mm. as much as um, as much exposure to the pediatric population. They really, mm. really were looking for it. Um, and the other group, as you said, were the rural and remote nurses who were dealing with pediatrics a lot and having a mm. lot of autonomy in dealing with pediatrics. Um, so this gives them a, a, a systematic way to assess a child, a systematic way to interpret an X-ray, um, because children are obviously very different than adults, um, and they. Um, it's a really good resource to sort of back them up and show them um, different areas that they can, um, different ways that they can look through the um, through the assessment of a child. Mm. Okay, did you, I don't know if it has lost connection for a second, but I did hear everything you said. <laughs> um, I guess follow, following on from that is, do you have ad advice for nurses without PEDS experience uh, worried about the idea of looking after an acutely unwell kid? Yeah, I suppose there's lots of things that that people who are healthcare professionals who've never looked after pediatrics before get really scared of. And I think mm. the the one of the main things is sort of um, when 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 you look after an adult, it's usually one vial of a medication or one tablet of a medication, and and that's you know standard for that patient. Whereas with kids, that's not quite how it works. Um, so. Really importantly um, is knowing your drug calculations or how to work out drug calculations for a child. Um, it's very mm. easy to find out the actual drug dose, but to work out the calculation is actually a little bit harder. So knowing how really how to work out your drug calculations. The other thing that you want to do is, is engage with the child. If the child knows that you're scared of them, then they're going to be scared of you as well. So making a real concerted effort to engage with the child when you move it, when you come into the room, getting down to their level, having a chat with the mm. child first and introducing yourself, who you are, what your name is um, and, and, and what you what, what the plan will be from here on. Um, really important as well um, is things like, um, you know. We we don't want to we don't want to frighten children, but telling them telling them things like oh I'm you know I'm going to give you this injection and it's not going to hurt that's going to get the child completely offside because obviously an injection mm. is going to hurt so lying to mm. them is is going to get them completely offside and, and you're going to lose a lot of trust with that um, so so keeping the child on side is is really important not lying to the child telling them and explaining to them in their own language um, what you're going to do um, and that's really important once you've got the child on side um, the parents um, then begin to trust you and, and they, they sort of see that you're a competent clinician and, and, and you can move on with the care then because once you've got the child on side, you, you most of the time have the parent on side and once you've got that, the battle's over. You can you can keep going with the care of the child. So it's really, it's really important to get everyone on side at the start. Getting the child on side can be the hardest thing. No, yeah, I can imagine. I guess the advice that I've been given when if you want to work in PEDS, the parents are your issue. Um, I don't know how much that rings true, but I guess following on from that is uh, I've seen a few videos of, I don't know if it's the Royal Children's, but uh, children being given 3D uh, devices to be, you know, transformed into another sort of universe or, or game while a procedure is done. Is, is this something you guys do? Yeah, we did it. We did a trial with the um, child and life therapists at the children's hospital. I think it was probably about a couple of years ago now, um, and it was about um, putting 3D, essentially virtual um, reality goggles on the child, and they essentially got to play a game whilst we did whatever procedure we needed to do. 
Um, and mm. whilst that, you know, it had some benefits, some children, it didn't work for some children and nothing's going to work for all children. Um, mm. So it's hard to say that, yes, it was, you know, 100% of children really liked it um, because obviously that's, that's never going to happen. Um, we do have um, really good, speaking about allied health, um, we do have really good um, child and life therapists. They're formerly known as play therapists within um, the, the pediatric setting. And they can be really, really mm. valuable dealing with when you're dealing with children in terms of distraction and, and using them as as a non-medical person to explain to the child what is actually going to happen and, and, and then them being with the child as the person who's not in scrubs, who doesn't have a stethoscope around their neck, who isn't going mm. to be doing the medical procedure. They're kind of mm. a person that they don't know who's going to add to their experience um, within, the, um, within the hospital um, and have a really positive, um, a positive influence on that child. Yeah. Okay. That's really good advice. Um, Kids are not just small adults. Uh, this is a massive question and we could do an entire lecture series and I'll ask you to come do that with me one day on all the different anatomical and physiological differences between an adult and a paid or a kid. I guess just generally, um, what are some of the differences? Um, so there's a, f a few different groups of um differences between pediatrics and adults so you can look at differences in an anatomy differences in physiology differences in, in behavior and dif differences in development um, and you can look at those things between adults and children but you can also look at those things between one child and another child and that's really important differentiation to make as well that one child you know maybe an excellent eight-year-old and sit, sit there and let you um stitch their a hand or their leg up um, with absolutely nothing whereas another child might not even let you look at their wound that you have um and it's really important to individualize your care when you're looking after pediatrics. But some of the, the technical stuff, um, so in terms of, of children, obviously they do not have as, as developed um, immune system as, as an adult. And so they become more sick more often, um, sorry, uh, they get unwell more often. Um, they often don't get as sick as adults do, as often as adults do. Um, mm. But um, we think about things like um, children having a, 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 an immune system that's not fully developed yet. Um, we think of children as having um, an immature cardiac cell so that when children become unwell or they become um, you know, they, they get a fever or an illness that the, the heart rate Im immediately um, accelerates. And, and the reason for that is that the children have an immature myocardium and that they can increase their stroke volume. So that the way that they increase their cardiac output is that they increase their heart rate as opposed to increasing their stroke volume. Um, mm. So that's one of the things that sort of is, is really important with children as well, that, you know, you can tell a lot from looking at a child from the end of the bed about how they are. The other thing about children is that they often get better really quickly and that's a really nice thing to see that when you do some small intervention with a child and i'm coming back to my favorite drug again something as simple as giving a child some paracetamol um, if they're feeling not quite um not so well um giving them a simple drug like paracetamol um often can change multiple aspects of of how mm. the child's feeling um and that's really important so that's a really good thing that you can do to to assist in uh, with the child is, is giving them some pain relief because often the root of their their um presentation to the emergency department is some sort of pain. Okay. Um, I guess following on from that would be, what do you do when a kid can't verbalize to you or talk? How, how, do, how do we navigate, you know, where's your pain? You know, all these sort of things with people yeah. who don't talk. 
that's that's um that's a really good question because it's essentially um you you bring in the caregivers at this stage so if it's a child that's you know a baby that is is pre-verbal or, or hasn't begun to to talk yet then it's really important to get a really good history from the parents about what symptoms or what what behaviors that the child is eliciting um that's brought them into the emergency department um and as you as you become a more experienced clinician dealing with pediatrics you you get to know um what sort of um what sort of factors influence a patient's pain so you know if it's a baby that's drawing their legs up you know that's often a sign of abdominal pain if you mm. see a child that's you know pointing to their a child that's sort of preschool and they're pointing to their knee but their knee exam is completely normal um it's often a pain that's transmitted from their hip and that's just something a little those little tips and tricks that you come across when you deal with pediatrics um that you you do um that, that you you pick up that if if you do a knee exam it's often not the knee that's the problem it's the hip when they're pointing to the knee um and the other thing is is getting really good at your pediatric clinical examination so examining mm. a patient really well exposing them for the least amount of time as possible obviously with a young young kid you don't want them exposed for a long periods of time where they can get quite cold um but exposing them to to see what um to see what you can find when you expose the child and the other thing about children is that often if you watch a child for long enough um you will find the the root cause of the problem so if you if you admit them for observation which is obviously different than adults because adults can tell you i have a pain it's right here it comes when i do this it gets better when i do this and it's much easier to figure out with children they don't often know what makes the pain worse when does it come does it come after eating and those kinds of things so often a period of observation is a really good um diagnostic factor for for um making a, a good diagnosis in a child so that's one of the main differences as well that things are just a little bit slower in pediatrics and you have to give the child time mm -hmm. as opposed to an adult where where they can just tell you everything that's happening yeah really good um to hear that uh i guess um sort of a different topic is uh, what are some of the common misconceptions about nurse practitioners and and from the public but also within the healthcare community and i guess what are some challenging aspects of being a nurse I know it's a, a heavy question. Yeah, I think there's lots of different factors um, in that question. Um, I think the the misconceptions are are not really. I think the misconceptions stem from a lack of knowledge. I suppose um, a lot of nurse mm. practitioners, because there's 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 not as many nurse practitioners in the country as nurses or doctors or physios or OTs or or that kind of thing. Then obviously the the publicity around nurse practitioners um, isn't as as wide and as far reaching as those professions. So it's a, it's a relatively new um, profession within the healthcare model. Um, and I suppose the the misconceptions or the the questions that people get um, are oh who are you or what are you or why why do I not need to see the doctor or you know that mm. kind of thing and it's just about educating those people and once they have the education most of the time everything just flows on from there and they understand the role and once people understand the role um you know you you normally don't you know come up against um any challenging um behaviors or anything like that um so I suppose once you once you provide people with that education um then that's um that's the, the I suppose the the winning factor um, in terms of caring for the patient because if they find it that they're going to get exactly the same yep. care or they're going to get the same collaboration of care um, then then they don't have a problem with that. 
Okay. Yeah, I can I can see there's a lot of aspects to it. Um, I guess my next question is, because we're sort of pressing time here, is what is the best piece of advice uh, you've ever gotten or you would give to anybody, another nurse? <laughs> Um, yeah, not I mean, anybody. <laughs> not anybody. Um, um, I think that one of the best pieces of advice I can give people is to speak up for your patient if you think your patient is is unwell or, or you, you you're finding something that's that's not quite right with your patient. If you can't put your finger on it, um, then escalate it and and do everything that you can to sort of speak up for your patient and and essentially you're you're the person if, if you're the registered nurse you're the patient that's with the 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 patient most um and you're the patient that's looking after them often for you know three or four shifts in a row if the mm. if the patient is on your ward for that amount of time or if the patient's in your mm. emergency department you're the nurse that's checking in on them you know once or twice an hour um and you're the person who's seeing the trends in 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 how this patient is is um is progressing and that's really important especially in the pediatric setting you know you go in and see a patient and i might see a patient um as a nurse practitioner for probably 15 20 minutes to do an examination and then i move on to the next patient i put in my plan of care and then i might come back to them in an hour or two hours time to see how they're getting on but in that time the nurse or the registered nurse has been in and out to that patient multiple times so i'm really relying on that registered nurse that's looking after that patient to tell me that anything that they've noticed or if their um vital signs have begun to deteriorate or if their vital signs are improving or if they've you know you've seen them and they um because i've you know stuck a speculum in their ear to check their ears every time i come in they huddle up to their mom and they don't want to leave their mom but because mm. the nurse has come in and brought them an icy pole and has been um you know hasn't stuck things in in their ears or down their throat they're much more friendly with them so giving the, the the treating clinician that um advice about you know when you go away they're actually much nicer <laughs> um so um yeah i think that's really important is speaking up for your patients and don't be afraid to speak up if you feel like something's wrong so i think that's one of the best pieces yeah. of advice i think very sound advice now i've got a funny comment here that someone's posted it's i think it's your father okay. i am an amt in <laughs> ireland and <laughs> i told him all he knows <laughs> Uh, and I got a, a question from Kate Styles before we get to some other questions is how do you find being a nurse practitioner in the pre-hospital setting? Hashtag St. John. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Um, great question. Um, and I suppose, um, uh, plug for nurse practitioners with St. John here. There is currently two registered nurse practitioners in the country of Australia. So I am number two. Um, <laughs> and shout out to Ange, who was the first ever nurse practitioner endorsed to practice with St. John. Um, go Ange, paved the way for me and made it a lot easier. Um, but I really enjoy it. I really enjoy pre-hospital work and I have since I was 10. Um, and that's sort of where I um, where I found my um, my healthcare um, niche and and that's really sort of it's really allowed me to to have a not only a great um, clinical um, uh, opportunity but also um, as with any organisation like St John or the Order of Malta it's great to have such a, a great group of so a social group um, to chat and to educate and and those kinds of things so yeah love being a pre-hospital NP um, and potentially it's, um, you know, way of the future. And I guess you just mentioned education. Do nurse practitioners have a massive role in education for staff? Yeah, so I suppose at the end of the day, you're still the um, you're still an advanced practice nurse, so you still have that um, that higher level of of knowledge in in multiple different aspects. Um, and there's multiple different ways that nurse practitioners can educate staff. Um, 
often it's on the floor education about um, you know assessment and teaching people on the floor how to assess a child's say neurovascular status for an arm or exactly what nerves you're testing when you look at neurovascular status the other mm. way is that we get often get um we often get pulled in for formal education um, and i know that i do some education for um postgraduate critical care uh, nurses um in on the topic of pediatrics so yeah. through universities um we obviously get recognized for a lot of the, the the width and breadth of experience that we have um and that's um that's sort of one of the other ways that we do. So both formally and informally um, education is, is part of our portfolio, I suppose. Okay. What does the future of nurse practitioners in an Australian healthcare system look like in your view? Yeah. Okay. Well, we need lots more. So any budding nurse practitioner out there, go for it. Um, I think um, we're widening our scope in the different areas that we're practicing in. So, so if, if you um, are perhaps a nurse practitioner that's looking to move into a, a new area of practice, then that's a really good, um, a really good idea. And there's lots of people who can help you um, progress your, um, your, your candidacy in that area. Um, and those kinds of things. So I think nurse practitioners are going to become a lot more, um, familiar to a lot more people they're going to become a lot more widespread and they're going to become a lot more um well known for for the work that they're doing because there's a lot of nurse practitioners doing really good really good really groundbreaking work at the moment in lots mm. of different areas and they'll have to come on here and i'll interview them but yeah it's really good to have to showcase through this interview as well i guess that was sort of the purpose of this um i've got two simple more questions for you um what is next for your career yeah, so it depends on who you talk to. Um, <laughs> if you talk to one of the NPs at the Children's, she thinks it's PhD. Um, I'm still toying with the idea. Um, it's not a, a, it's not a, it's not a, a task you enter into, enter into lightly. Um, so I think currently it's continuing to expand my scope of practice, working in um, private practice and expanding that scope of practice, and then perhaps move, maybe in the next who knows how many years looking at doing something um, with a PhD, but that won't be for another while yet. Okay. And can you, just before we get to the last question, was that GP clinic, is it, sorry, not GP clinic, the nurse practitioner led clinic. That's yeah. another role you, you have. What is the nurse practitioner's uh, involvement in that and how does that all work? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a privately run nurse practitioner clinic, and it's a really good opportunity for um, nurse practitioners to practice autonomously. Um, and it's um, it's an emergency clinic that deals with minor injuries and minor illnesses. So um, anyone can can rock up to the to the clinic, and essentially it's an edivirus clinic that um, you can uh, essentially. It, it's attributed to something similar to a GP clinic that's out of ours. Um, and we mm. can autonomously manage patients, provide prescriptions, provide procedures um, and those kinds of things. So it's essentially like going to see your GP, but instead you're seeing a nurse practitioner who's going to provide you with similar care um, and similar collaborations um, with other healthcare professionals. So it's a, it's a really good opportunity for, for nurse practitioners to expand their scope and for also for patients to access care. And I know you may not like this question, but how does Medicare and nurse practitioners, how does that blend together? Yeah, so it's a bit of a, a topical question at the moment. Um, and Medicare, so nurse practitioners can bill Medicare privately. Um, the Medicare billing is somewhat um, less than 
the 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 billing that a, a GP say for instance could bill Medicare for um, and in some instances it's providing um, similar care so there's an actual task force that has um, been set up by the um, the Department of Health in collaboration with the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners to to look mm. at that at the moment um, and I think their findings should be coming out um, I think the latest update I read is around the middle of the year and that will be recommended to the Department of Health and looking at Medicare reform for nurse practitioners which will be a great step forward for the profession okay um, that sort of sums that one up. Uh, hi, Michelle. Uh, awesome. You must work with an amazing team. He's a colleague. <laughs> oh, really? There you go. <laughs> and uh, amazing. So inspiring. So really good that you've been inspired. Um, and my final, final question is, what advice would you give to someone wanting to consider to be an MP? Yeah, I think it's it's an absolutely brilliant pathway to follow if you're if you're really interested in it it's something that gives you um, job satisfaction no end um, and i think the the main thing to do is just go for it if you if you if you feel like you np is a pathway for you absolutely just go for it um, get your masters done um, and then speak to your workplace about getting your candidacy off off the ground um, and and really go for it and hit the ground running and take every opportunity that you can it's definitely a mm. really worthwhile pathway to go down awesome um, final words guys if you've been watching this thank you for watching um, you can still post your questions and comments and interact with it. Uh, maybe Simon will be able to answer them in the future. Also, if you guys have listened to this on Spotify, um, not the live recording, then uh, thank you for listening. Um, everyone who is currently listening, these will all be downloaded as podcasts as well. So you can watch them on Facebook and I think YouTube shortly. Uh, and you can listen to them uh, in your long car trips if you really want to uh, on Podbean, Anchor and Spotify. <laughs> um, thank you, Simon, for uh, joining me at 5.30 to 6.30 on a Friday night. I think it's takeaway time and, and it'd be a... <laughs> Definitely takeaway time. <laughs> Definitely takeaway time. Okay. I'll leave you with it. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Jackson. Thanks.